Philosophy, a conversation-based podcast with philosophers working on nature and the environment. One of the other things I think that aesthetics can be doing is to actually start thinking about environments that have been neglected and we are losing. On this episode of Earth to Philosophy, Claire and I are speaking with Emily Brady, professor of philosophy at Texas A&M. We read Emily's chapter, Climate Change and Future Aesthetics, which was included in the volume Climate Change and the Humanities, published in 2017 by London Palgrave. So, I mean, maybe you should start, Claire, because you wanted to read this paper in particular, and I think it was because of specific questions you had or specific interests that you had about aesthetics and and climate change. So maybe you could give a like a little overview of the paper or just why you want to, like why you chose this one to talk to Emily about what like got me thinking about like climate change and aesthetics and then led me to thinking about this paper which I knew that Emily had written and that was actually um, you know earlier this year it was in the news about how basically no matter what climate action we now take it's like a third or two-thirds of the the Himalayan glaciers are like doomed to melt by the end of the century and I started thinking about just think things like that that are disappearing from the world due to climate change and like biodiversity loss and thinking about like what like obviously on the one hand we're losing you know in the case of glaciers like a source of fresh water for like billions of people and you know in in other cases really important parts of other ecosystems but along with that we're losing something aesthetic and like we're losing a something beautiful in the world and I was thinking about that in in way like a couple of ways that are really relevant to this paper of Emily's which yeah on the one hand what is that loss like why does it matter that that feature might not be there anymore um in like 100 years time and well I think I've stood on a glacier once when I was a teenager I can't really say that I remember like specifically my aesthetic experience of it but like even in a secondhand way I feel I have benefited from like aesthetically if that makes sense to from there being features like glaciers in the world because of like the art and like literature that's been produced through that like in particular I was thinking this all I think came about as well because I was reading Mountains of the Mind by Robert McFarlane uh, um, earlier this year and he has all these really amazing descriptions of glaciers and like features of mountains in that and in those descriptions themselves have an aesthetic value and I got something out of that um, from reading those even if I haven't experienced glaciers firsthand so for me there was there's this you know there's also a record of this beauty in the world which then in the future might not be there anymore for people to enjoy and I, I guess that is the case for anything that maybe goes extinct but like I think maybe now we have such a boom of nature writing that you have like these really amazing records um, in prose of these features which are now being heavily impacted and are going to continue to be heavily impacted by climate change so that's sort of what brought me to thinking about the paper to begin with. I think more and more we're seeing in public discourse, in the media, in television programs like Blue Planet uh, which have reached huge audiences and been people say quite influential in terms of their appreciation of of oceans and the effects of climate change and uh, plastics and other kinds of consumptive practices. 
the loss of glaciers, as you mentioned, Claire, um, disappearing glaciers. And I think the first thing to remember in those kinds of cases, which are becoming, of course, more and more frequent with climate change, is first that there are aesthetic qualities, that there are aesthetic values associated with all of these kinds of things, whether we're talking about a healthy ocean, living coral reefs and glaciers, but there are also questions of ethics um, and all of the kinds of um, environmental injustices, uh, let alone ecological injustices that are um, being caused by climate change. So I don't want to separate those two issues too strongly. But at the same time, I think you have to understand, at least from my position, how they're how they're related and not related. I think that more and more, it's probably the case that as we see more and more extinctions and more and more extinctions are brought to our attention uh, related to climate change or for other reasons, the more we understand globally, melting ice, uh, rising oceans, the more that that we learn of these things, I think there may be more and more pressure. Uh, and indeed, you could argue that there's been an explosion in nature writing, at least in Europe and the UK context. I see more and more nature writing. I think that may also be the case in North America. I'm not really sure about other parts of the world. But it, as a kind of urgency develops, it may be that people feel there is a kind of obligation, that there is a kind of moral obligation to actually preserve as, in, as you might have in the case of anything that we see as being lost, whether it's, uh, um, you know, the Great Auk. I think probably when the Great Auk was lost, when the Great Auk was finally extirpated by humans, that at that time, you know, they were incredible, incredibly beautiful, uh, beautiful ornithological illustrations of the Great Auk out there. But whether people felt an urgency at the time to somehow, you know, um, develop accounts of of that bird and as a, as a way to hand that on to future generations. I somehow doubt that. I think we have a different kind of environmental awareness today. So my sense is that that an urgency may develop and people may feel, um, people may already feel that we have a moral obligation through uh, literary work, fiction, nonfiction, through the arts. We already see the arts engaging climate change in all sorts of really interesting ways. But I suppose I want to say that that that's maybe more a moral obligation that might arise as opposed to something like an aesthetic obligation. But I I, I am a, a philosopher who sees the two areas, the two kinds of value as, as different. Um, it doesn't mean they're unrelated because I think that aesthetic value can function uh, to enable human flourishing. So when you talked about, Claire, your experience of being on a glacier and that probably very moving experience of beauty or sublimity or wonder or uh, whatever it might have been, that's an experience you carry with you. And that experience, you could argue, may press on you and others you who hear that story of your experience on a glacier and have never been on a glacier themselves, impress on them the need to, to look after the natural world and to change particular environmental behaviors in order to try to prevent climate change. But then again, I see that as aesthetic sort of not strictly speaking generated a moral obligation, but an aesthetic experience feeding into your way of thinking and that leading to certain kinds of ethical thinking about our responsibilities to the natural world. I just want to like push back a little on, on one of the things that you said about, well, that yeah, aesthetic experience not necessarily generating moral obligation because 
you know, there are some like famous artworks that ends up being bought by like very wealthy people and going into their private collections. And some people would argue that those things should actually be more for public consumption and that there's like some kind of there's something a bit wrong with with things of like such beauty and you know aesthetic value being kind of hidden away for the (laughs) pleasure of one person and that they do belong in the public realm um so i wonder if if there's a comparison there with kind of trying to preserve things in nature for their aesthetic value yeah I, i mean maybe the problem is I'm, I don't think we may disagree. I think it's maybe the language. So what does it really mean to say that an aesthetic experience or aesthetic appreciation or aesthetic values generate moral obligations? That's where I think the rub is, because in my own philosophical view, if I'm to make any commitment about the relationship between aesthetics and ethics or aesthetics and environmental obligations, my view would be that aesthetic experiences and values, positive aesthetic experiences and values, can encourage and engender particular forms of caring attitude or ethical attitudes like respect or protecting things. So I think that's, I just want to be careful with how I articulate that. So that that's sort of my view. Does that mean that I'm saying that aesthetic value generates moral obligations? That sounds, maybe that language is perhaps too strong for the view that I hold. I think the the worry I have is that I don't want to say that because something has aesthetic value, it necessarily has to result in the protection of that thing. That that's a little too strong for me. There can be all sorts of different kinds of reasons that aren't aesthetic that are important to sort of figure in when you're making any decisions about the protection of something. So in the case of the of the artwork. We may feel, because of the value of that artwork, we may feel that other people ought to see it. Is that what's really going on there between aesthetic value and and having a particular obligation? That's really the question, isn't it? You know, a, a really common example is a national park. So it's because of the natural beauty, um, but not only because of the natural beauty of a particular place that you might designate it as a, na- as a um, national park. So the natural beauty of a place becomes a reason for protecting it. So that's another and that that I kind of think is OK, too, whether that really translates into generating a moral obligation. I'm, I'm just not sure. Mm-hmm. I just am I just playing with words here? I, I don't know if there's anything. No, to it. I think I, I understand the distinction that you're trying to get at there. Yeah, I do agree with you. And I think that maybe it would be a strong claim even to say about like, I don't know, a Rembrandt or something like, because it has such high aesthetic value, it therefore must be preserved for future generations to enjoy. Um, that that indeed might be too strong of a claim to make, but that it could at least be like a compelling argument to make um, in favor of why such work should be preserved and also be in the public realm instead of privately enjoyed. So I think, I yeah, in that sense, like, it might also be too strong even for natural entities to to make a you know to make that same claim that that's a reason that they um that therefore we're obliged to mm, right. for future generations um yeah. and as you said there's like so many other reasons that we would we would want to do that and aesthetic con- considerations yeah. might be one of those but um probably not in most cases the overriding factor either and i guess that's that helps me to sort of express 
a point when I, I suppose one of my concerns is some of it's philosophical concerns. Some of it's just, I happen to be a moderate autonomist when it comes to the relationship between aesthetic and moral value. But I think it's also the case that I worry about aestheticism and I worry that uh, and this is certainly something I've come across in my professional life when giving a paper, even if I've not stated it in the paper in any explicit way, often people will say at the end of the paper, oh, but, you know, um, what about ethical, you know, issues or biodiversity or ecological value? And I sort of, I often have to say, well, I never made the claim that aesthetic value trumps other values. In fact, in my view, often other values will trump aesthetic value, and quite rightly so. <laughs> so you you have to, I think, be a little bit careful maybe when you, if you, if you uh, make that relationship between aesthetic and ethical value more intimate, it's possible. I mean, it's ironic because aestheticism is the complete separation of aesthetic value from anything else. Um, and sort of, you know, putting it prior to any other kind of value. Maybe it's the worry in the wilderness, some of the, you know, controversy about the concept of wilderness, that it's often attached to concepts or values like beauty and the sublime. And so then people often think that if you're talking about the beauty of, of wild places, that therefore you, you're not thinking about, you know, the, the justice uh, issues around injustice in particular when, you know, people are um, indigenous people have been forcibly removed and worse from particular places to create national parks, you know. So I think it's 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 just sometimes the way that aesthetic value gets thrown around. Um, and that's not that's not surprising because that's how it how it gets when you're <laughs> talking about applied philosophy and you're talking uh, in interdisciplinary contexts and not everybody's on the same page about some of the more you know detailed understandings of the nature of aesthetic value in these different debates. So hearing your explanation and when I was reading your paper it's it was it's very hard for me to separate the aesthetic from the other kinds of values that that are that lie in it and so a lot of my questions are are like for me trying to tease this apart and understand when you were speaking about what we might do in, in a case of the loss of anything, we want to maybe preserve it in specific ways. But that's not, I mean, when I was thinking that through, that that's not even usually for aesthetic reasons, right? That's for other reasons. It has other values. But so I wonder, maybe one of the ways this is also getting conflated is it seems to me that nature writing and series like The Blue Planet I think they are operating from a close relation between the aesthetic and the ethical. So we see all these beautiful pictures mm -hmm. of the world that we wouldn't see otherwise. And it's mm -hmm. not ever stated explicitly, but there's this very strong implied mm -hmm. idea that you've seen, like now you know how beautiful the world mm -hmm. is. Now you know how much it needs our care. And so do you like, I mean, maybe first, do you agree that this is the, that this relation is kind of pervasive in maybe more mainstream presentations about environmental beauty or aesthetics? Yes. And are there yeah. others that are not so sort of imperative or some are not, or that maybe take this, these two as more related, but not, yeah, no yeah. obligations falling out of the aesthetic. Yes. I mean, I think, um, well, a good example is just that, when I was writing a paper on ugliness in nature, um, I remember doing Google searches and it was really hard to find, you know, kind of images that, that I could think about or, or examples and cases. Um, 
I kept getting images of that that poor dog that's like the ugliest dog in the world that doesn't have any hair (laughs) but but I think you know it's I'm not a you know I'm not a communications so I don't have expertise in, in environmental communications but certainly it's it's kind of common that we see the post uh, the the poster child of climate change is the the polar bear which is a very majestic incredibly majestic creature and um, similarly with blue planet I guess the examples are going to be often beautiful ones and if they're not beautiful it's going to be around wonder it's going to be about the incredible wonder of something you know that functions in a particular way that's so other than human that we can't even imagine and and there's a beauty in that other kind of creature and so on so in those cases, and I think wonder is a, I see wonder as a kind of overlapping, but still a more distinct category from the aesthetic. Um, so I think there's certainly that tendency in the public discourse to talk about beautiful things, to talk about beautiful things that need to be preserved or saved or protected. And it's interesting that some of the uh, NGOs around the uh, natural environment, I'm just going to use that very loosely, you know, they're catching up with the fact that they also have to have a big, you know, color spread on insects or a big color spread on losses to other kinds of less, you know, majestic or less basically non-mammals and so on. So, and is that kind of ethical care, uh, environmental protection built into work like Blue Planet. Well, it's interesting that uh, David David Attenborough um, has become more and more uh, of an advocate. You know, I'm not going to speculate as to why. But I think also the fact is that images have a lot of power. So, you know, we were talking earlier about literary preserving or for future generations, these incredible places and particular species and so on, literary, artistic, but also, of course, photographic film and so on. So I'm not sure if that really answers the question, but I don't I don't think it's surprising at all that mm-hmm. a lot of the public discourse will will sort of wrap up that sense. I think, indeed, when you write about I don't know why. I don't know about both of you as environmental philosophers, how you feel, but I, I sometimes find it hard to write as an environmental philosopher without implicitly being an advocate, it, you know, and I think it's interesting that sometimes there's criticism of that from other fields in philosophy. But then I sort of wonder, well, political theorists and, you know, people writing about justice and people writing about feminist theory they're kind of allowed to be advocates you know, <laughs> implicitly while they're also philosophizing. So I, I always, I sometimes think there's a double standard when it comes to the environment, perhaps because of you know, environmentalists, you know, I, I don't know, but I, it's something I, I have to say that's kind of bugged me over the years <laughs> that, you know, why can't I write about, you know, the environment in a way that's philosophically robust, but also quite naturally implicitly is implicitly there's a kind of advocacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've always been a little worried about not just not in my practice of philosophy, but just in, in general, in my concern about people caring about the world around them. I've never been like very interested in the beautiful, majestic. These are completely sort of extrinsic worries, but that if we only use these things to get people to care about nature, then as soon as like they encounter a spider or <laughs> there are mosquitoes around or they have to face the fact that there are 
aspects of nature that are just not beautiful or are sometimes threatening, then you've lost your allies. And I think if that's the basis of what uh, engenders concern and care, that's a really limited and not even truthful <laughs> basis yeah. of the dimensionality of, of the yeah. non-human world. Yeah. I, I think, though, that also there's something to be said for, like, and I think maybe this will come back to um, the idea in Emily's paper about the um, the experiential thesis. So experiencing nature firsthand is that's that's how you derive an aesthetic ex- experience or an aesthetic judgment is by experiencing something firsthand. It, it, it's not used to define aesthetic experience, but it's more a kind of stipulation, uh, and it and it really derives could be pre-Kantian, but from Immanuel Kant, the argument that it's that aesthetic experience or the aesthetic judgment, strictly speaking, is something that arises out of an immediate perceptual experience of the world, not mediated. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so just to use an example of well, not not exclusively Blue Planet or you know any nature documentary or anything, but but as a very like visible example like i think that it does it does a couple of things like it um on the one hand reveals beauty and and other features of parts of nature which otherwise one we would miss mm-hmm. because we we aren't really able to look at it in mm-hmm. that kind of detail without human eyes <laughs> um and in addition it can make something which encountered in person like that you know in person does not seem so pleasant and lovely actually like draws out the the beauty or majesty of that thing so i am disgusted by spiders (laughs) when i see them in person you Um, love ones here in texas (laughs) i mean i just i can't help it it's just a very visceral reaction i have however i can really appreciate how clever they are as a as a species and how advanced some of the things that they do are like way more than you would expect from Mm. from like a creature like that that's so small and so different to a human being and you know part of that is those details being drawn out in often like quite artistic ways by like writers by Mm. tv shows so even if in person my first hand experience is to be like oh I want to get away from that thing Um, Mm. on the other hand I don't kill them anymore (laughs) because I appreciate a lot more about them than I used to in the past and Mm. so even yeah even without enjoying them in person but I don't know if that's an aesthetic thing is is the thing as well like even experiencing them second hand through a tv show doesn't necessarily that's not necessarily an aesthetic uh, an aesthetic experience I'm having of them it's more like it's giving me certain knowledge which makes me appreciate their place in the world and mm-hmm. uh, how important they are in other ways and this comes out in your paper as well Emily about depending on what kinds of knowledge that you have you might have quite different experiences of of a of a landscape or of a certain aspect of nature but again I just don't know if that that will necessarily enhance the aesthetic experience. I sometimes think actually your aesthetic experience of something in nature is really quite separate from what you know about it. Like knowing, for example, that, yeah, a lot of British landscape is quite ecologically impoverished doesn't make my heart not swell every time I go back to England and go oh my beautiful home look at this beautiful country and I can't help but have that very strong reaction to it and I do feel it's very beautiful 
even if on the other hand I know that actually it would look quite different if it were ecologically thriving yeah yeah there's a tension for me there in in those experiences and I think quite quite rightly and I'm I'm kind of I'm with you on that last point when I when I was back in the UK I I was just like I don't care if it's just cultural landscape and it's biodiversity is awful it's still beautiful so I know I know what you mean and I mean I'll sort of answer that point and then kind of go backwards I think because I think my approach to aesthetic judgment and value is is sort of a a kind of critical pluralism intersubjectivity and I think it's not unusual that people have different landscape tastes I don't think that means it's all subjective I think it means it's about your experience, your knowledge, just like with the arts. So you can start to parse out, you know, why people have disagreements and how that might map onto different forms of knowledge they have or don't, and how that knowledge is functioning. And in particular, things like being an, uh, having arachnophobia is another, you know, aspect of yourself that gives you a particular bias against firsthand <laughs> aesthetically enjoying a, a garden orb spider, which are really lovely, actually. <laughs> but I you know, I, I understand that. You also have um, people who are afraid of snakes and things and can't see the beauty. And that's all that's all because of certain aspects of that individual or people who have that feeling about insects or snake, uh, spiders and snakes and so on. It's not uncommon. So so we can contrast your your sort of appreciation of landscapes in England and my appreciation of landscapes in England with you know, a story that was related to me and probably related to you when we were working together, Claire, about um, the Australian philosopher Richard Sylvan visiting Lancaster and, and being taken out into um, actually nearby Yorkshire Dales and just saying, compared to his experience in Australia or where he was living, at least, just saying it was just a just a desert in terms of biodiversity and just being shocked by these, you know, by the kinds of things that George Mombio talks about, you know, and and so on in terms of places being grazed to death and so on by sheep. So I think it's people will have different levels of knowledge. And I think we have to make room in our theory of aesthetic value for lots of different kinds of approaches that people may take, may take to the landscape with all, without falling into a kind of hopeless subjectivity or, relative, uh, or relativity. And with respect to uh, the experiential thesis, which, you know, it's interesting that I still feel strongly about it, but just listening to your question and some of the things you said, Claire, and then looking at the question that Andrea also sent me ahead of time, you know, I still feel pretty strongly about the experiential thesis, but I think I also have another angle on it now from just our chat, which is that on my view, when we're watching Blue Planet or when we're um, reading um, Robert McFarlane we're, we're experiencing and making aesthetic judgments about representations of things. So a photographic or a cinematic representation. Uh, and that, that opens up a whole nother debate in philosophy around transparency and photography, which we don't need to go into. And some people might find that that kind of claim is um, a little bit harsh, you know, that you're not really experiencing the real thing. But this is the other side of it that I think just opened up for me, or maybe I was reminded of it, is that in a way, Part of the point of the experiential thesis is not it's not just about the subject. It's also about what it is that one's appreciating. It's about, in a sense, appreciating it on its own terms, not on David Attenborough's terms or on Robert McFarlane's terms. Those are the terms of of, uh, someone um, producing a nature documentary or working with nature photographers and cinematography and so on and or with a literary scholar. 
and their interpretation. And those interpretations have huge value, but they are representations or artistic imagined. You know, they're not just the way things are. <laughs> they never are. Just as your experience of the Lake District is going to be different from mine, but not in a way that we can't converse about it and talk about the aesthetic value of that place and maybe even agree on particular kinds of aesthetic values we find there. So in a way, I think the experiential thesis can have almost a kind of ethical gloss to it, if you will, along the lines of Yuriko Saito's view that uh, aesthetic appreciation ought to be on nature's own terms. That's very hard to really unpack, but it will mean that being there can be a very good thing. It can be that immediate experience can be a really wonderful thing. My experience of the bobcats um, this morning in my backyard, the mother and the two kittens with the kittens playing, you know, I felt like I was a National Geographic, but I was just peering through, you know, the sliding glass doors at the back of my house. And the, the bobcat was watching me very carefully, the mother bobcat. But she wasn't bothered, you know, and I was, you know, I, I was keeping my distance. I was inside the house. And she's a pretty top predator here, actually, <laughs> coyotes and, and yeah. bobcats. But my point is that the experiential can have its own value and the representational can have its own value. Andrea mentioned in one of her questions that were sent to me about what about the experiential thesis actually encouraging unethical kinds of behaviors or behaviors that might be damaging to the environment. And all we have to think about is ecotourism or you know, your example, Andrea, of climbing Everest um, and what's what's the trash and, and you know, danger to people and the environment and so on. So in those cases, again, I, I would separate the aesthetic and the ethical. I'd say there's nothing about the experiential thesis that has built into it that we must, they have, we have some obligation to visit places. That's that's a whole nother discussion. Uh, the experiential thesis is only about the nature of aesthetic value and how that's articulated in a kind of conceptual way. Uh, what What then might issue from it is really a question of ethical, moral, justice. So that's how I try to resolve that question. On that idea, <laughs> I actually think quite a lot about people visiting places to like enrich their own lives mm -hmm. and how that's an increasingly problematic thing to do for the impacts that people have on natural entities, let alone the impacts they have on like the livability of other cities and things. And I wonder, like, so on the one hand, I think we'd probably all agree, like, if you if you get to go and, like, if you get to experience something like bobcats hanging out in your garden, that's, like, an enriching experience aesthetically and, you know, in other ways. And, of course, there's, like, I think piles of, of literature by now and studies about how beneficial it is to people to go and be in nature and to, to get to, like, experience that on a more day-to-day -day basis. And... Obviously, if you get to see things that are a bit different to the norm, that that's a very rewarding experience as well. Like I've been in in the States and seen creatures I wouldn't ever expect to see like in the UK or in, in the Netherlands. And, and I really value having had those experiences. But yeah, recognizing that there is an impact that comes with those things. I think on the one hand, there's obviously there's an argument to be made about like not doing that. Even if it does enrich your life, just try to not <laughs> be a person who's adding to those impacts. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in, if you're in a position to, of like, you know, of somebody who can like go on holiday to these places and see all these wonderful things, like you could, you could decide to not do that. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, I think 
there's also another argument to be made from that, which which is about also why then it's really important for preserving or like, you know, for protecting as much of the environment in all parts of the world as possible, you know, and preserve it into the future so that you can have those enriching experiences more on your doorstep. And I think this is a lot of the argument of rewilding, not to get too much into a totally different topic, but, you know, to bring a lot more of that to people so that mm. you can just go outside and see many more mm. kinds of species than you currently can in mm. certain parts of the world and to like be able to just have those experiences closer to home in a way and to bring that to also then to people who can't otherwise afford or you know don't otherwise have access to mm. those more far-flung places but I think mm. as as we lose more species and we lose more features like glaciers and the world, the natural world retreats more and more from us um, mm -hmm. because of our own activities and we go chasing them farther and farther away. That for me does have a very strong argument mm. for trying to bring more of, of nature into your own back garden as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think this comes back to what we were saying earlier about it not just being about charismatic megafauna and like these sublime natural features like mountains, but just being able to appreciate those smaller things a lot more as well. I don't really have a question in that. It's just more of a comment. No, I mean, it, it, you came around to exactly what I wanted to add was that absolutely that, you know, Blue Planet is, is, a, is a wonderful way of bringing, I don't mean to turn this into a commentary on Blue Planet, a wonderful way of bringing and an incredible influence in terms of the people it can reach to, into bringing the beauty of the oceans and so on in, into people's living rooms, literally, in a way that many, many people cannot. And the interesting thing about everyday spaces and uh, nature is that absolutely, the more that one can bring attention to the aesthetic and other ecological value of, of everyday spaces, every day in itself suggests greater populations of people who are valuing, right? So um, greater amounts of people who are concentrated in cities or peri-urban communities, whatever it might be. And it's interesting because, again, back to landscape taste, you know, my my everyday when I was living uh, outside of Edinburgh was, was a very manicured kind of park-like landscape in a neighborhood, which was not far from the Firth of Forth. And there was a very everyday nature, according to a lot of people, an everyday nature of the garden robin and the blackbird and the herring gull and very highly designed gardens and landscapes. But it was also going to the ocean and being able to experience wild seabirds and so on. And that was within 20 minute walks. And then here I am in a place where there's much more biodiversity, even in my backyard. But the irony, I don't know if this irony is a true irony because I don't have the evidence for it. But the fact that there are bobcats and coyotes feral hogs, uh, and the list goes on, that come through my backyard, which is an acre. There could be lots of different reasons for it. But one reason could be because they have loss of habitat nearby. They're developing my area like crazy. I happen to live in a place that's growing as opposed to a place that's not growing. And as a result, um, more and more habitat um, loss is occurring near where I live. So I don't have any data to know why would it always be the case that because I have a, more land and a lot of the people who live in the neighborhood have about an acre and so there's going to be more habitat. Is it because those animals maybe, yeah, it could be both. Um, and there could be other reasons too. It could be because my husband's actually trying to ecologically restore our property to post oak savanna, which is one of the bioregions in this part of Texas. You know, so we're providing opportunities for food and so on and, and shelter. 
So absolutely everyday spaces, but also the way everyday spaces are relative. (laughs) So you have a city, you have my old neighborhood where I used to live, which is a strongly cultural design landscape. And now where I'm living, I live five minutes away from the strip, five minutes away from a highway. Yet for me, it's been a lesson in the development of different landscape tastes and how they change. And it's been a lesson to me in what everyday nature really means the different kinds of things it can mean for the urban person and just not to forget that kind of diversity. But absolutely, I think it's not an accident that environmental aesthetics and everyday aesthetics are overlapping very intimate in terms of these these two real subfields of aesthetics. Everyday aesthetics is all about expanding the realm of the aesthetic in terms of what philosophers study away from just the arts and into more everyday contexts. And environmental aesthetics I think quite rightly, historically, we're not a, 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 an old subfield with a long history, but there has been a tendency to think more about wilder nature or less humanly modified nature. That's been changing some, and I and other people have done work on modified environments, and people obviously have been writing about aesthetics in relation to cities as well, aesthetic environments and cities. But I don't think that means that's a big criticism of Blue Planet, because again, as a representation, it brings that world into somebody's living room. And I don't know, is that a bad thing? This is kind of related. The connection would be sort of day-to-day experience. And the one question that we haven't addressed that I asked that I that I think would be good to address, the other ones are kind of all just like ethical questions, <laughs> like trying to mask aesthetic okay. <laughs> ones. Um, okay, but the one that that is, I think, more of an aesthetic question, is the second one that I ask. So in the paper, you give a standard case, which is perhaps, let's say, like a bleached coral reef. And the question is, well, can we still find some aesthetic value in this object that we know, for other reasons, signifies a harm? Mm-hmm. And then you also present a narrative case, which might be, from a person's perspective, of a landscape or an, of an environment that's changed over time in a, in a way that ecologically we would say is degraded, but we also want to be able to say that that degradation could have aesthetic value, that it could be a beautiful new species that is, that's arrived. And then you also give this, the last one is the pervasive case. And I don't think we have to extend our imaginations very far to put ourselves in a, in a case where we have to recognize that the whole world is affected by climate change. Mm. And what then? Do we do we want to be in the position where we have to say that that aesthetic value is diminished because of the moral relation that has to the harm that's been committed? And you want to say no. We want to be able to say no, there, that this can have aesthetic value. We don't want to have to be tied to that. So, uh, so that's just to kind of give an overview of, of what mm-hmm. goes on in the paper. So then I have a related question because this is an experience that just in my daily life that now, like Claire was saying before, like we know so much, especially in the last couple of years, about what we've committed ourselves to in terms of harms and changes from greenhouse gas emissions. And it's hard for me whenever there's like a weather event that seems more severe than normal. Let's say there's a storm and I can I can see that it's it's beautiful, it's, it's intimidating and, and in some ways very impressive and threatening, but it's also maybe something beautiful. But at the same time, my appreciation of this aesthetic thing is, is now accompanied by a kind of dread or a kind of... Existential dread. Yeah, that <laughs> otherwise in, an, in a world where I could imagine there was no 
human-induced climate change, I would not feel this way at all. I would maybe be afraid or, well, the relation would be different. And I think I want to say that this, that my aesthetic appreciation is different because mm-hmm. of this new association that we, that I think we have to make. Mm-hmm. And my question is, is whether or not you, you see this as a change in aesthetic value, or if, if I, this is another case of me sort of onloading other things to the aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. It's um, no, I think when I was reading that question and having you explain it to uh, it just reminded me of how I think on a kind of intuitive level that often people go one way or the other on this question of whether aesthetic value is autonomous from ethical value or whether um, it's not. And sometimes the way the discussion goes in aesthetics is to say, if you're an autonomist about aesthetic value, you will say that a moral defect in something does not count as an aesthetic defect. So that's the way it's put in terms of works of art. If you're a, um, if you're a moralist, you know, if you're just looking at two, two ends, two extremes, really, uh, moralist, then you think that a moral defect will count as an aesthetic defect. And the classic case is, you know, is the sunset. You know, so you find out that this gorgeous sunset is caused by pollution. Somebody tells you it's caused by pollution. And do you still find aesthetic value in that sunset? And that's kind of a test case, I think, to where people fall almost intuitively on this question. I, I, I happen to fall not just intuitively, but I've also argued for it on the moderate autonomous side of things. And it may be that you, you are kind of more someone who's, who finds it hard to separate the two. I mean, one thing I'll say, and I said this in the paper, is that when you're talking about a phenomenological kind of rendering of aesthetic experience, it's very hard to separate out. But conceptually speaking, it's not difficult, in my view, having argued for autonomism or moderate autonomism in a few different places in my in my work. And I would want to say that I don't think that other people, it has to detract from the value, the aesthetic value. But I but I know that in my experience, it it maybe doesn't even detract, but it certainly changes. It changes yeah. the register or something like this. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think I would want to go the full moralist way and well, say, sure. oh, sure. Well, we should see it this way. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I think when I've had discussions with people about this question, that's kind of how they, they're like, but there's this, this is kind of poignancy that becomes mm-hmm. part of the experience. There's a kind of tragic feeling that comes, becomes part of the experience. So what is that really philosophically speaking, conceptually, what, what's really going on there? Maybe it's a new emotion becoming part of the experience. Some will argue that that is a kind of shift in, you know, the, that that actually causes an actual shift in the aesthetic perception. And others will say it doesn't cause a shift. But in terms of what the implications of that are, you know, I guess the way I try to make the case is to say that, say you have that feeling or it, it doesn't really mean that the aesthetic qualities go away and some people say they don't either. But I think what happens is maybe a kind of recognition is is coming out of that aesthetic experience or a sense of the way things are. Maybe, maybe not unlike maybe a certain kind of new awareness. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah. I can also imagine someone arguing and, and saying, well, no, that's the wrong that's the wrong way. Like what you're doing is you're letting your worry cloud the kind of experience that you might be having and that you're not allowing this to be like nature on its own terms. Instead, you're just taking your anxiety and projecting it onto uh, yeah. whatever. I mean, I think you, you also just have to think of the case too, uh, because 
you know, in your question, can the appearance of a bird in April instead of May begin to symbolize or stand in for climate change more generally? You know, is there a sense in which and that to me is a kind of shift away from the aesthetic toward maybe something almost like sacred value that you find in the environment, the way that something starts to have a particular kind of symbolic or cultural whatever meaning you want to say. And that's a really interesting question. You know, what might that really what does that really mean in, in terms of climate change? You know, what what kind of new meaning does something take on that's kind of quasi aesthetic or maybe quasi not religious, but, you know, quasi symbolic, because that's easy for us to find cases like that, especially with birds, as, as you mentioned, because they are historically and culturally from across the globe, harbingers of this or, you know, symbols of spring coming or symbols of a heart, you know, they not just birds, of course, often birds. And, you know, when you see the first swift or hear the first swift, you know, ah, summer is you know really here. So I guess I guess what I'd say is there maybe the aesthetic is moving into something a little bit different, you know, maybe a more existential sort of recognition and awareness, a sort of a kind of meaningful experience that is is arising out of an aesthetic focus on, you know, semi-tragic, semi-poignant kind of emotion. So, I mean, think about a polar bear. You see a polar bear playing in the snow or a picture of a polar bear playing in the snow. How do you view the polar bear versus a polar bear that's, you know, charging, watching film of a polar bear charging a human being <laughs> um, versus a polar bear like, you know, an image of a polar bear like on dry land and on ice, you know, and foraging where it's not never foraged before because it, it can't find enough food on the sea ice anymore. So, in all of those cases, they're just different kinds of cases about how you might view the aesthetic qualities and other ways you might view that polar bear, perhaps as symbolic in some way of, you know, especially when people have these photographs of polar bears foraging, you know, in villages and in Siberia or whatever. It's like, never seen a polar bear do this. And, you know, my guess is that people don't see that polar bear as this pristine kind of incredibly beautiful creature anymore. But it's something that's been almost sullied by climate change. But I think my answer is that it's 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 something around I think symbolic value and cultural yeah, value, yeah. but it's it's a very specific one that's connected to loss. I mean, again, I think there's a comparable case could be made around this with extinct animals. So yeah. extinct animals become like the great auk. They're this constant reminder of, of what we've extirpated and, uh, and uh, other kinds of creatures that humans have made extinct. They become this reminder. And similarly with climate change. Because it's just essentially it's about loss, right? It's about some kind of loss. Yeah. And so how do those narratives of loss play out in terms of valuing, I guess, is really the question. So I think my, my feeling is that there's not something particular to climate change about these tensions with like within your experiences of nature and how those experiences have like an aesthetic dimension or can be aesthetic. Because I think that there's so much mixed up in it there's like like my case with the spider earlier or like your your example you just gave Emily about seeing a polar bear in different contexts how it could be utterly terrifying or like very beautiful and majestic to look at and I think that those sort of contradictions or those abilities to like switch from one to the other are just always inherently there and like maybe what climate change throws into relief more is like that we can't so easily have the one experience separate from the other or that 
like we can't just go and look at things and go oh, like look how how beautiful it is out there right now but then later maybe things turn more menacing if like a storm rolls in or something um because now there's much more you know extreme weather is obviously much more threatening so like you know when when you have a storm that you're like right it's just a summer storm Mm. you know kind of know what this involves so we can just kind of appreciate it and we don't really have to worry you know people have always had experiences where weather events and like other creatures can be threatening or can be uncomfortable in some way but that what climate change is doing is just bringing more of that discomfort in more regularly and and part of that is that kind of existential dread (laughs) that we talked about I remember seeing back in I think it was February we had like a mini heat wave and it was the first time I'd ever seen people responding like online and things in a way being like this fills me with dread (laughs) I can't enjoy this wonderful weather because I know that it means something terrible is happening to the world and so yeah there's a level of ignorance again in the past that people used to have when that weird weather was happening a few years ago I don't think as many people had quite the same existential response to it as they do now and I think that's just because the awareness of climate change has like exploded in the last year but yeah so my my point is there's always these tensions and I don't I don't know if there's ever been a time where where people really can just so you know say that oh this thing in nature is very beautiful and that's it because that's never its own equality and that's I think what the difference is between and maybe it's not a t- it's, it might not be a total hard difference like I think that that art like paintings and things can also be you know multiple things like they're not just a beautiful painting for example but I think maybe there's a there, there is a difference there in that if you look at a, a painting versus looking at a landscape like there's more of that in a in a landscape or in some natural feature where it can be so many multiple things depending on the context whereas a painting is a painting like it doesn't it doesn't change its state and this of course comes back to what you said in your paper about aesthetic appreciation of nature is often involved in processes rather than static Mm. objects Mm. but like the fact that something is processed and changes inherently means that your experience of it can change Mm. minute to minute like you know Mm. you might have an aesthetic experience of a storm and then within that same storm have that experience of threat and it totally changes the character of it for you so I think that you can't get away from that and climate change just exacerbates it or brings Mm -hmm. it out more maybe yeah it makes me think about just how how will climate change have and this is one of your questions too have a kind of have an effect on sort of our aesthetic lives if you will and I think we're already seeing in kind of these reactions we're starting to see things just differently. Not everybody, of course, but many of us are starting to see things differently. We're starting to see storms differently. Just recently here, another hurricane hitting um, the Louisiana coast and some flooding, but not as bad as they thought. But, you know, people are, you know, slowly but surely adapting to the sense in which the frequency of se- of, of really severe weather is a is climate change related. And so maybe that shifts the way in which we look at everything you know in terms of the environment you just start to perceive things differently I think on on a philosophical level one could argue um, that certain forms of knowledge as they are coming into your perceptual framework are changing the way you see things and so will that then trickle down in an aesthetic sense maybe it does in certain kinds of ways you know I think I would always hold that you can't really experience a hurricane as sublime unless you're in a safe place you know (laughs) because a hurricane is a 
is an awful and tragic thing for both humans and non-humans in terms of, of the kinds of effects that it can really wrought on a place. But I think, I think that adaptation aspect is a really interesting question to think about in both aesthetics, not just environmental ethics and not just in geoengineering. And, and um, I think it's a really interesting question on the aesthetic side of things. What would be worrying is if we just started to get used to certain kinds of losses, they became the new normal. And of course, there's every danger that that will happen, that there'll be so much, so much species lost that it will become the new normal. And, you know, oh, just another beautiful creature is, is gone. Uh, just thinking about the aesthetic value of something as opposed to its logical or biodiversity value. I think there's a lot of really fertile ground. And I'm kind of surprised that I haven't really seen many other philosophers writing about aesthetics and climate change. Yeah. Every now and then someone will contact me, I think, and I'm, I've been trying to urge it um, because I think, frankly, I think it's odd if it sounds a bit strong. If you do environmental aesthetics or if you do what you prefer to call aesthetics of nature and you, you don't actually start thinking about the most pressing environmental problems we have, which a lot of people would argue are, if we're talking um, about uh, non-humans, uh, extinctions, and climate change, and obviously humans come into the to the uh, climate change side of things. I'm not sure so much about extinctions, I suppose, in terms of how species loss affects people's livelihoods. On the other hand, people have their own interests and will pursue their own interests, so that's okay too. But I guess I just, I think that a lot of other areas of applied philosophy r- respond to particular kinds of pressing issues that are occurring, and so I'm not really sure why environmental aesthetics shouldn't also be doing the same thing. I guess it's very similar to environmental ethics. You have some people who are responding to those more pressing issues and others who are pursuing particular interests on, which is what we all do as academics. It's fair enough. (laughs) I guess in some ways it's sort of maybe they subsume it in a way under, you know, human influenced landscapes and ecosystems and things Mm -hmm. just as, you know, that's just part of what has an impact on an ecosystem and, and its aesthetic and other values in some sense because I mean I think that you know you your paper raises a lot of really interesting points about aesthetics in the future and certainly I've been thinking through all sorts of things about yeah what kind of value does even like representations of things that might be lost through climate change or species extinction like you know books and and films and things what sort of value do they have in the future and mm-hmm. is it like is there too much tr- going to be too much tragedy bound up in it and like how do we you know I don't know I think it's interesting to think through how that how that stuff would be valued um, mm-hmm. at some future point because I don't I don't think up until now we've had the same yeah we haven't had the same access to like so many almost artistic records of things that we've lost mm-hmm. um, true it raises philosophical points too in the sense of towards the end of that paper I think trying to think sort of philosophically and aesthetics, thinking about what, um, and this is something I've written about a little bit, is intergenerational aesthetics, you know, bringing time and process more fully into our thinking about aesthetics, not just environmental aesthetics, but more generally, and thinking about questions of imagination, how imagination might actually serve, might have a really interesting role to play in terms of thinking about future scenarios and future aesthetics, which of course is a term I use in the paper. But also it makes me think about how aesthetics, you know, might again engage more with 
particular people writing about aesthetics engage more with questions of design and modeling because what we know about climate change is all around climate modeling and that's all about future scenarios and that's scientific ways and imaginative ways of working out how things are going to be in 100 years time so i don't know i think i think aesthetics could really use a kind of injection of a, a kind of thinking about time and the future and, and, and again thinking intergenerationally just the way that People are thinking much more intergenerationally about concepts of justice. I think probably also should be doing that in aesthetics. When I look at other fields like cultural geography or human geography, there's a lot of attention paid to sort of geo-humanities and Anthropocene. It's almost as if the Anthropocene has become a kind of symbol for, for all of our woes, you know, if you're looking at it negatively. Or if you're not looking at it, if, if you're not looking at the Anthropocene normatively, it still becomes a way of framing uh, our intellectual approaches to the changing world, put that in really broad strokes. So even if climate change may not be specifically addressed, say, by a cultural geographer or indeed by a philosopher, perhaps the Anthropocene is a, a shorthand way or one way of framing discussions that maybe also we need to pay attention to if we're just kind of thinking about kind of the future of the human and non-human world. Um, and one last quick, quick thing. Um, I wrote a little blog on John Muir. Whatever you think of John Muir, I know he's controversial, but um, but it speaks to the glacier experience. You might want to have a look at it because one of the other things I think that aesthetics can be doing is to actually start thinking about environments that have been neglected and we are losing. So I think aesthetics should start writing about ice, for example, because that gives us, again, another discourse which enables us to preserve something that we're losing. So that's just another, I just have a little, it's just a blog piece. So it's just a little foray into that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. You can also, we'll also link, to, we can link to that when we. Great. Thanks again so much for the opportunity. Yeah. It's, it's, you, you, when you do a kind of podcast interview, you sort of think that you're being interviewed, but as a philosopher, of course, it's very different. You're having a really good discussion and you're learning something as well. So I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to Earth to Philosophy. Feel free to send us an email with thoughts or questions or topics or people you'd like us to cover. You can email us at earthtophilosophy at gmail.com. And Claire, why don't you let people know how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Hamlet Claire. Um, so I'll be, I'll be tweeting about the episodes on there as well.